0: This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, your source to healthy living. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. My guest is Ryan A. Bush, founder and author of Designing the Mind. His purpose is to provide wisdom, education, and to expand human potential beyond the norm. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here, Claudia.
0: This sounds like a huge responsibility. You want to expand human potential. That sounds exciting and it sounds like we could all use it right now in light of what's going on in this world. So let's talk about how you plan on doing that. So you've written several books. The first one is Designing the Mind. How do we design the mind?
1: Yeah. So uh, this is the book where I coined the term psychotecture, which is kind of a, a cool new word for a very old practice of uh, just kind of the process of designing and changing our minds. Uh, And there are a lot of ways of doing this that are scattered through different uh, disciplines. So we look at psychotherapy, we find some of these tools, we look at ancient philosophy, we find others. Uh, And and so really, it applies kind of an engineering approach to the act of self-improvement, essentially, uh, where we're saying, what are these actual mechanics? What are the algorithms in our mind that cause us to think and feel and behave in certain ways? And what tools exist out there? What snippets of cognitive code can we find in these different thinkers and and these different works and therapeutic techniques uh, for actually modifying uh, these at, at the most effective points? It goes through our thoughts and our emotions and our habits And it says, you know, how can we modify these? How can we eliminate cognitive biases? How can we rework bad habits? How can we change our emotional reactions in particular so that our emotions work with us instead of against us a lot of the time?
0: How do we get our emotions, which I think are mostly what drive us and drive us to behave a certain way? How do we separate emotions from reactions?
1: There are a lot of different uh, ways of looking at this. One of them is, is through the lens of, Cognitive behavioral therapy, which I find to be uh, one of the most important sort of methods that is largely undiscovered by most people. You know, if you seek therapy, you may learn about cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's extremely useful for everyone. And We should all be learning this uh, at an early age. Uh, but essentially, it's it's how our emotions work, right? We have uh, events that happen to us in our lives, then we interpret them through our thoughts and our, our beliefs and then it's those thoughts and beliefs that produce our emotions and so there are certain types of thoughts that result in uh, anxious emotions there are other types of thoughts that result in anger others that are associated with depression and grief and and so uh, a lot of the most effective ways for redesigning our emotions is by looking at those thoughts and beliefs that we habitually experience in our lives so when something bad happens to us how do we interpret that event right what what is the thought process, are there any distortions and errors in those thoughts that are resulting in these distorted emotions that are uh, ultimately not healthy for us? Very often the answer is yes, there are distorted beliefs. We can look at the, the sort of most common recurring biases for actually changing those beliefs and it results in you know, different, often much healthier emotions.
0: In the case of, let's say, for example, something happens to us when we are younger, could be a trauma that one person considers trauma, the next person doesn't. But we kind of carry that through our lives. And is that what kind of interrupts or changes our texture, as you call it?
1: Yeah, very often it is. When we're young, we don't have fully developed thinking capacities. So we often develop these beliefs that just don't really make sense, but we you know, don't ever go back in and question them as adults. So people who have experienced trauma as a child very often will walk away from it with the belief that, oh, something bad happened to me, so I must be bad, right? And we literally carry that all the way through to adulthood. And if we don't go back in and examine that and say, wait, no, this doesn't make me bad, this doesn't reflect on me, uh, then we could very uh, very easily you know, carry that belief and, and even you know, have it result in depression down the line. Uh, because we're we've internalized this idea that we're bad because this bad thing happened to us
0: in your book, uh, designing the mind, is that kind of what you backtrack and you and you kind of help people unravel those situations? So instead of starting from point A and getting to point B, you kind of start at the other end and backtrack.
1: Sort of. I mean, actually, in, in CBT, for example, going back to childhood and and examining the causes is not always necessary. It's not always the most important thing to do. What's important is what is currently perpetuating these emotional patterns now. And so going in and saying, oh, look, every time this happens to me, every time my boss criticizes me, for example, I have this type of thought that goes through my head, this kind of deeper belief that it relates to, and that sends me down this emotional spiral that affects me for days after right? If you can identify a pattern like that, that is absolute gold in terms of changing your mind, right? In terms of Mm psychotecture.
0: And is that kind of like understanding PTSD? So I've, I know that's like a huge term but that's kind of what happens to us we have this like post traumatic response where somebody says something and it may not it may start with your boss but it may be another individual in your life that says something or ha- something similar happens and then we kind of hold on to that and then we are not able to change the psychotecture or design the proper psychotecture of the mind
1: it certainly relates to PTSD and trauma i will say i haven't gone that deep down that route of of studying those particular issues, I've really gone deep into anxiety and depression uh, in particular. So the first book, Designing the Mind, was really a high-level overview of this process and this way of thinking. And then since then, I've kind of gone into other areas and said, can I learn everything there is to know about anxiety, about depression, about these issues that affect a lot of people? And, uh, Trauma and PTSD, this is a, a huge issue that I want to do justice to. So I won't claim expertise on it just yet.
0: You're on to something with, you know, understanding depression and anxiety. Do they go hand in hand? Does one maybe cause the other? And if you help one of those conditions, can you essentially kind of help heal from the other?
1: Very often they do go together. Very likely if you have one, you also have the other. And I think it it kind of makes you know, sensed in just a common sense way because depression is very much a, a present reflection on who you are in your life. and It's determining that there's something inadequate about you right now. And anxiety is a more future-oriented version of that. It's, it's a worry that in the future, I'm not going to be okay. My life's not going to be okay. I'm not going to be acceptable. So it makes sense that they would go together. That being said, they can also be understood as as distinct phenomena. They can come separately and treating one won't necessarily eliminate the other. Some people have just really deeply ingrained anxious habits and they've never been depressed in their life or vice versa.
0: When we talk about depression, you know what, you actually made it make so much sense to me. I never thought about it where depression is kind of in the moment. You're not worthy, you're not good enough. And anxiety, you're right, is more like a future uh, sensation because you're always worried about what could be and what might be. Um, but in terms of depression, what causes that feeling of unworthiness? I mean, I know that there's many reasons, but does it so- is it something that happens mostly from our childhood or can it happen like instantly?
1: Yeah, so this really ties into the new book and this new framework that I'm putting forward in it. Uh, I call it virtue self-signaling theory, which is a, a synthesis of a lot of different findings in a lot of different fields uh, that provides an explanation both for the the highs and lows of well-being, clinical depression at the low end and the uh, what I call eudaimonia at the top, essentially a, a very deeply happy mental state. And so my understanding has, has gradually grown to the idea that the depression and happiness, our, our mood is determined by Uh, The virtue that we signal to ourselves, and I'm going to break that down because virtue is this kind of stuffy, outdated word today. It's not necessarily the moral purity that I'm talking about, but the signature strengths and the traits that we pride ourselves on. Our brains are constantly evaluating us based on these traits, these strengths, or these virtues. Uh, And so very often when you see these thoughts that people have about being unworthy, unlovable, unlovable. What they're really saying is, I'm not seeing any evidence of my virtues, of my signature strengths. We can see how this connects in evolutionary psychology, in clinical psychology, in neuroscience. Very often when people are depressed, in fact, almost invariably, they have a very negative view and set of beliefs as to their own virtues, their own personal strengths. The two ways of dealing with it, both found in CBT, really are, one, correcting those false beliefs about which virtues I have and and bringing out regularly. And two, maybe even more important, what's called behavioral activation, which is actually exercising those strengths on a daily basis. A lot of our virtues uh, that we've had maybe since childhood are kind of latent in us now for one reason or another. Our job, our relationships, whatever these different vessels are, they're not giving us an outlet for those strengths. Right? And we can get caught up in a vicious cycle where we're not seeing evidence of our strengths uh, through our behaviors. That's creating a very negative mood and a very you know, negative spiral often. And that's causing us to feel idle and not like doing anything, which is reinforces our failure to see our own strengths. If we're just sitting around our house and we're not doing anything, we're not seeing evidence of how great we are as individuals. So even though we do have those strengths, they're they're latent in us. They're not actually being brought out for our brain to see. Our brains evolved in many ways to monitor these strengths uh, and, and to keep us Paying attention to them,
0: and when you talk about virtues, we're talking about somebody not feeling like they're smart enough, they're good enough. It could mean anything that would make a person feel whole compared to another person.
1: It's everything from courage to creativity, and we very often find that a person will have, you know, maybe five of these signature strengths that they are really good at. They've always thrived at. Their loved ones will will bring them up when they're talking about them. And it's very often best to focus on these signature strengths rather than perfecting every one of your weaknesses. So really making sure those things that you've always thrived at, that you admire in other people around you are coming out into your behavior and you're designing your life and your choices uh, according to these strengths.
0: Does it make sense for us then to be aware of the things that make us feel good and then focus on that. I can look at you and think, wow, you're so articulate. You're so bright. That may not be what fulfills me. So maybe in my life, I like adding humor to my day or I'm, you know, I like art and I like drawing. So I'm using my mind in other ways. Does it make sense for us to try and focus on the things that fulfill us and then expand on that?
1: Yes, it's a very individualistic process. An important distinction between the the things that fill us with pride and admiration versus the things that just sort of give us momentary pleasure. Uh, You know, if you're focusing on what makes you feel good, maybe that's junk food and video games, which these things often don't bring out much of our virtues. And and they can result in a lifestyle that uh, will make us depressed in the long term. Not necessarily if they're done you know, intelligently, but focusing on the things that I, that make me feel proud of myself that, that I, you know, admire in someone else and that, that I have always thrived at. Even looking at your, you know, your childhood often and saying, what was I really interested in? What was I really good at when I was three years old, right? Very often will reflect still what we should be focusing on now. So absolutely, you should have your own unique set of virtues that are as unique as your own fingerprint, essentially.
0: I love that. And I think uh, when I was three, I loved riding my bike. And I think that, you know what, I should try to get back into that, kind of get the child spirit out of me again. Um, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, but I do love the idea of reflecting and uh, understanding what really made you feel proud of yourself. Does it make sense as parents for us to really enforce that in our children. So when we're looking at our kids saying, wow, you're really good at this, you're really good at that, that's your strength, you know, you should go with it. Should we be giving that positive reinforcement to our children so that we can help them design their minds in that way to avoid the depression?
1: And Absolutely. And there, there's a lot there because we, we definitely want to uh, praise people, praise our children based on the things that they really thrive at. Um, you know, for a long time, it was thought that self-esteem for the sake of self-esteem was good. And if we just praised people constantly for everything, that that would result in happiness and success down the line. And, and I think what we found is that it's very important to praise people on their actual strengths, the actual things that they are good at, and to help uh, sort of gently cultivate those traits further in them. So I absolutely think parents should uh, place focus on cultivating and reinforcing these virtues in their children. Uh, that being said, I think um, taking an overly sort of controlling approach and and forcing these virtue behaviors on your children can kind of backfire because if they don't develop their own capacities to do these things on their own, uh, then without you, they're, they're going to sort of, um, you know, no longer, no longer have those self-sufficient virtues within them. Um, you know, I also think that that relationships, whether it's a parent and child relationship or another relationship is one that uh, enables each partner or each person in that relationship to bring out their strengths and to have those strengths appreciated. And often the most unhealthy relationships are those that deprive partners, deprive one person or another of the ability to bring out and have their, their virtues seen.
0: That makes so much sense. When We Come Back, The Anxiety Algorithm and Ryan's book, Becoming Who You Are. This is The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 105.9 The Region or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Ryan and I discussed his book, Designing the Mind. Now we are going to discuss his latest book, Become who you are, Ryan? This sounds like a fascinating book, and I'm so excited to hear about everything about the book.
1: Yeah, a lot of this uh, virtue self-signaling theory and and this idea of cultivating your virtues is the main focus of Become Who You Are. But in addition to the sort of theoretical components, I offer a very practical framework that individuals can use to navigate their lives, uh, and also a lot of you know less formal advice. But um, essentially the, the core idea in Become Who You Are is that um, there are dimensions of happiness, right? And, and so you can think of the first dimension uh, almost like you're looking at, say, a chessboard in front of you. The first dimension is simple pleasure and pain. It's the X axis, right? It's one of the ways we navigate our lives. We like to go towards things that make us feel good and not bad, obviously, right? The second dimension, the Y axis is uh, loss and gain. And so this is more of a long-term oriented type of thing where we're looking at you know gaining jobs and relationships and success down the line very often we'll sacrifice our short-term pleasure for this long-term gain uh, but together these two axes kind of make this two-dimensional plane that we navigate our lives on now what i argue in the book is that there is a hidden third dimension which is what we've been talking about virtue here and it's it's essentially the dimension that gives this chessboard in front of us the depth the mountains the valleys right and these are what actually cause our happiness or our unhappiness these are what lead us into depression or to this peak well-being that i call eudaimonia while we're going around on this two-dimensional chessboard you could say chasing all these things that we think will make us happy right the shiny objects right actually our happiness is doing something else entirely and it's corresponding to how well we are exercising those virtues every day. You can imagine someone on this sort of landscape right, going around chasing things that bring pleasure in the short-term what we call hedonic well-being or that that, uh, bring us some form of external success. Actually, we're actually going up and down in these mountains and valleys of virtue without even realizing it. And so what I encourage people to do is to start framing their life, start looking at their decisions in terms of the virtues that they bring out right instead of just analyzing that new job opportunity based on the salary increase and the healthcare and all these other you know important things right asking yourself will this increase or decrease how much i'm able to bring out my signature strengths right this is one of the the most important factors if not the biggest factor determining our well-being and i've personally experienced the highs and lows of this right finding myself in positions where I didn't have many outlets for my virtues, and I did get dangerously close to, you know, a real depression that could have lasted longer in those cases. Uh, And so I think it's absolutely essential to pay attention to this portfolio of virtues that we each have and, and to nurture it and make our decisions accordingly.
0: And so that all ties into your, you know, your expertise in the area of anxiety I mean, if you're not aware of how to fulfill or utilize those virtues, you're you're like you said, you're gonna maybe get depressed, and you're gonna be anxious about what the future holds, um, because if you don't know how to seek them, how to utilize them, you're gonna be anxious about it. So, let's talk about the four A's of anxiety.
1: I sort of took on a project a couple of years ago of reading every bit of literature I could find on anxiety, from just books to, you know, papers to clinical handbooks. And um, and I was surprised myself by how treatable anxiety actually is. It's the most common mental health challenge in existence, and there, there are actually pretty reliable methods for eliminating it, but it, it's very often the opposite of what we're told about it. And so actually going in and understanding how does this, what I call anxiety algorithm in our minds work, can be really helpful, right? So the four A's are essentially how anxiety progresses. So you've got the antecedent, which is the trigger in our environment, whatever it is that initially uh, brings on anxiety. right? Then you've got the arousal, which is our physiological elevation, our heart rate, our, our rapid breathing, our sweating palms. right? Then you've got the appraisal, which is the mental interpretation that we give to what's happening, right? whether we interpret it as danger or not. And then, of course, we've got the action. So whether we take action to escape the thing that's, you know, scary, or, or we stay, choose to stay in that situation and embrace it, right? And so each of these sort of hold keys to uh, reversing anxiety, to actually ending it in the long term, instead of just Sort of managing or calming or soothing it in the in the short term.
0: When you do the assessment of the four A's, do we have to go through all four of them, and then you know decide how we're going to react, or do we nip it in the butt right away at appraisal? Or how does that work?
1: So it kind of depends on what type of anxiety you're experiencing. This framework applies to everything from phobias to panic attacks to worries. Um, so let's let's look at panic attacks for example, right? What what essentially happens? is that regardless of what the antecedent is, regardless of what initially triggers the anxiety, what's happening is that you've got this feeling of physiological arousal. Your heart's beating like crazy, your your breathing is accelerated, and you interpret that feeling as dangerous, right? So your appraisal is, oh no, this can't be happening. I'm having a panic attack. This is very bad. I have to make this go away. Well, the problem is that that interpretation has a cyclical effect on the arousal itself. And so we have an even more elevated heart rate, right? Because we've decided there's something dangerous going on. And this leads us to further interpret danger. So it's a vicious cycle between the arousal and the appraisal. And it it can escalate out of control if we continue to resist and fight and try to suppress the anxious feelings, right? Now, what happens if we do the exact opposite of what we feel like doing? Instead of trying to resist, what if we embrace the feelings? What if we say, okay, this is find that I'm, I'm having a rapid heart rate, heart rate. Maybe I'm going to have a panic attack. That's okay. You, you can actually even go further with this and say, actually, I want my heart rate to increase. Let's see if I can get even more anxious. It's a very counterintuitive mindset. But what you will find if you if you do this successfully is that your anxiety will slowly subside until it disappears and you won't actually have a panic attack. So panic attacks are purely perpetuated by a fear of panic attacks. If you get rid of that fear and you say, you know what, this is fine, I'm actually going to lean into this, you, the panic attack won't happen. And this is a pretty reliably found in, in the clinical space.
0: That is so interesting. So if I'm having an, a panic attack, um, then all I have to do is kind of just like maybe panic more so that you just get the heart rate up to a point And then it just kind of like, like oh, I'm, I panicked about nothing. Is that essentially what we're doing?
1: Yeah, it's it's called paradoxical intention. It's kind of the same as if you're trying to go to sleep really hard, you're not going to go to sleep, right? If you're trying to fight the anxiety, you're not going to get rid of the anxiety. So instead, lean into it. You know, it, it works for phobias too. You know, if you try to escape whatever it is you're afraid of, you are teaching your brain, that's a, a legitimate fear. That's a legitimate danger. Keep being scared of that. If you lean in and you do what, you know, what's known as exposure therapy, you actually expose yourself to and embrace the thing that you're afraid of, you will quickly find if you do it properly, and there are steps to doing it properly, uh, that fear will decrease more and more. And I I applied this as I was building this program to my own fear of heights. I was terrified of climbing up a actual like rock wall, Uh, even though I had a membership at a rock climbing gym, I had never gone to the top. And I applied these methods of gradual desensitization uh, to my own fear and gradually got to where I could get to the top without experiencing any fear, which was kind of a lifelong thing for me. So you can actually end these lifelong anxieties if you apply these principles properly.
0: And so is that what you mean by the, the principles of anxiety elimination?
1: Yes, it, it's essentially the, the counterintuitive approach to anxiety, the principle of doing the opposite of what you feel like doing. Uh, and it, it applies to worries as well, right? When when we worry, we actually often have these catastrophic thoughts and then we follow them up immediately with reassurance. We tell ourselves, no, 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 that'll never happen. That's I, I don't need to worry about that. I'm fine. And what we're doing by soothing ourselves in the short term like that, we're actually reinforcing the anxiety in the long term. So, so very often it's best to uh, look our worst-case scenario right in the face and and consider it until it's boring to us, right? Uh, and and not jump in and reflexively sort of reassure us every uh, reassure ourselves every time we want to um, every time we have these thoughts.
0: Anybody listening to this is going to be so thrilled that we can they can actually learn to manage their anxiety and maybe eliminate it. The question is, is it something that's going to happen immediately after one time that you do it, or is this also going to need practice? And you know. I don't want to use the word failure, but like you're going to try it and then you're going to be like, oh, that didn't work, but you just keep trying it.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a right mindset for approaching it. It's not, you know, expose yourself to what you're afraid of once and you'll instantly not be afraid of it, right? There are steps for incrementally increasing uh, what scares you. So if you're afraid of public speaking, right, you can sort of rank different public speaking tasks on a scale from 1 to 10 in terms of how much they scare you. You want to start pretty low and do something, you know, maybe speaking in front of two of your friends, right? And you gradually move up this scale to desensitize yourself. If you go too high too quickly, uh, you'll flood yourself, which can be good unless you escape the situation because you're so overwhelmed by it and you're so scared that you end up just running out of the situation. That will actually reinforce the fear. And so you want to take a very systematic approach of gradually desensitizing yourself, without uh, you know inciting so much fear that you'll end up escaping and, and training your brain to stay afraid.
0: Ryan, your book sounds so fascinating, and I feel like you've done so much work in trying to you know put put out there what we all need to practice on a daily basis. So your two books, "Designing the Mind" and "Become Who You Are." Can you tell listeners where we can find them, how we can get a hold of you, and uh, some of the ways that people can learn more about you?
1: Yeah, the best way to do all of that would be to join the Designing the Mind email list. And you can do that at designingthemind.org slash And I'll actually give your listeners two free books, right, PDFs. Uh, one is the Book of Self-Mastery, which is sort of a quote book uh, that I've compiled and, and added commentary to. On the topic of self mastery, the other is the Psychotext Toolkit, which is uh, sort of a, a quick breakdown of this thing called Psychotecture, right? And if you do that, you'll you'll join the email list. You'll see links to all these books. You'll know when Become Who You Are is available for pre order, which should be very soon. And of course, that you can get on the website and and buy Design in the Mind or uh, any of our other products. The Anxiety Algorithm that I mentioned is a is a program. It's kind of a thirty day audio based program so there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in place now and and going to that link is sort of the first step to all of it.
0: that's incredible thank you so much for joining me today you can always find me at claudia underscore macchiella or my website claudiamacchiella.com that's my show for this week if you missed it go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast including apple Podcasts, spotify google amazon music and of course audible i'm dr claudia thank you for listening i hope this helps you live your best life The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.